This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Hemp is legal to grow in Colorado, but hemp seeds can only be imported for research. So how is Colorado's crop set to be bigger than ever this year? For an explanation, let's meet Dwayne Sinning. He manages the Industrial Hemp Program for the State Agriculture Department. And welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So hemp and pot are the same plant with one big difference. Hemp doesn't get you high because it lacks the psychoactive chemical THC or has very little of it. It can be used for everything from paper to clothes to food to concrete. Remind us how hemp growing became legal in Colorado. Well, the citizens of Colorado in Amendment 64 gave us recreational marijuana and industrial hemp. And in that, they also said that the two would be separate and regulated separately. So that's how the Department of Ag ended up with industrial hemp. Right. And uh, these have been moving on parallel courses to regulate them, figure out how to legalize something that is still illegal federally. Uh, Colorado farmers can't import seeds, though, because of that federal uh, illegality. Um, is that right? Importing seed is a difficult proposition yet. Um, we import seeds just for universities, institutions of higher education, and currently we have uh, five institutions set up that we do that for. Okay. But we know this. More people are growing hemp in Colorado beyond those institutions and for non-research purposes. How is that possible? Well, uh, when we looked at uh, the Farm Bill, one of the things we said is that uh, in the Farm Bill, it gives people the right uh, to, to – uh, look at or institutions the right to look at market. And so part of that is our belief that commercial enterprises, just like in any other industry, uh, like Ford Motor Company would do a car, they do research and development. So we do research and development under that, uh, under a commercial registration. Okay. So this is under the federal farm bill. And that means that there can be some seed transfer then between the public institutions and private farmers? Is that what you're getting at? We don't don't bring the seed in for institutions of higher education, but we do believe that uh, the private farmer then can uh, develop varieties right here in the state and sell those varieties here in the state. Okay. But we we need to get to the more fundamental question of how they get seed. I'm still not clear on that. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, So, yeah. So, I think if we look at seed – before there was uh, the uh, farm bill, there were people that would have always been growing seed, just like there was marijuana in the state before there was uh, before there was Amendment sixty four. There, there was hemp in the state. There was also naturalized stands within the state that dated back to the thirties, and those uh, varieties, those plantings, uh, naturalized stands have been picked pretty hard over the last few years. But they were just on farms throughout the state. They were on farms throughout the state. Dormant, I guess? Uh, They were growing, just not maintained, just sitting there. Okay. And so farmers may have found those and and, uh, paid new attention to them, I suppose. Absolutely. They they picked and harvested a lot of that seed and have been doing some crossing to develop new varieties here in the state. So where is hemp uh, hemp production now and where is it expected to be? Uh, As far as uh, the land area, there's 42 counties of our 64 counties that have hemp registrations in the state. And there are uh, over 8,000 acres of land that is uh, for outdoor production that has been registered and another 1.25 million 
square feet of indoor production. Okay. And that is meteoric growth since the passage? No, since the passage. The first year we had uh, 1,811 acres that were registered, but most of that was for people that were just looking for a certificate that said after this many years they could do industrial hemp. So we only had about 200 acres that were actually uh, planted. Last year we had 3,700 acres that was registered and about a hundred and uh, 80,000 square feet. So you can see its indoor space has really exploded and the outdoor space is, continues to grow multiple fold. Oh, I see. So hemp can be grown indoors as well. Yes. Okay. And so does this mean that hemp is a serious crop in Colorado or becoming one right along with corn or sugar beets or what? Well, I don't know that it's uh, any, anywhere near the size of corn, but it certainly is. Uh, I, I like to think of this as, you know, we're in the infancy of an industry that's emerging and where it'll go, I don't think we know. Uh, but it has grown significantly and it's it's worth taking a look at to see whether it should be part of the agricultural options that farmers have. What do you know about the people who are getting into it as farmers? Well, the first year we saw a lot of people that were close to universities. It was really exploring, you know, the opportunities that may be there. What we've seen now is that mainstream agriculture out on the plains, down in the San Luis Valley, on the western slope, we're seeing some large planting. So what we're seeing is definitely a move from uh, almost hobbyist or small one acre or half acre uh, land areas to, to literally parts or whole parts of a circle pivot. So we called one hemp farmer on this question. Mike Sullivan runs Hemp Farm Colorado in Johnstown, Colorado. That's on the plains southeast of Loveland. And in the last few seasons, he's built up a considerable seed stock that he's now selling to other farmers. Uh, but this is how he says he got the seeds for his first harvest. We got one pound of seed from the stork and the other pound of seed from an old farmer out east that said his grandpa and his dad used to grow hemp up until the late 50s when they finally shut him down and wouldn't let him grow anymore. Okay, so some of that older hemp seed. But then he said he got a pound of seed from the stork. From the stork. Presumably the same one that brings babies. Um, let's just be clear. Are some farmers smuggling in hemp seed, if you will? Well, I think we'd be naive to think that there wasn't any seed that was smuggled in. But I also think that if we thought it was large scale, that 200 acres we saw the first year would have been much higher. Uh, but I also think that in the case of Mike, he may even be referring to, you know, he bought seed or got seed from somebody and he doesn't know where they got it from. So there's a lot of material that uh, was passed around the first few years that the origin traceability back just isn't there. So You, you don't seem too concerned. Well, I'm I'm always concerned, and and the biggest concern I have is because if the seed is smuggled, uh, you know, it's illegal to smuggle anything, uh, let alone as uh, you know, hemp is still classified as a Schedule One drug, would be more looked upon by law enforcement, could be looked upon as uh, more dangerous than smuggling methamphetamine, and you could lose property to seizure laws. So, yeah, I'm concerned that there's really for the farmer that may be planning it, and for the smuggling activity in general. But I'm not concerned that we can't trace every bit of seed back to its origin. All right. So we're talking about hemp in Colorado, the growing of which was legalized when voters also legalized recreational marijuana in the state. And joining us is Dwayne Sinning, who manages the industrial hemp program for the state agriculture department. And so I want to talk about this, uh, this relationship between the states, institutions of higher education, and farmers. 
Um, your goal is to certify more seed, simply to make more seed available through legal channels. Is that right? Correct. We're looking at starting a true certified seed program. And in, in the country, this will be the first. And that will apply the same standards that we use to corn or wheat or pinto beans in the state. And that really sets apart isolation, sets apart purity, and then tracks the origin of that seed. So uh, what a farmer will do then is be able to buy certified seed like he'd buy certified seed in any other crop. Know that the mature plant won't be over 0.3 and he'll be able to grow it and harvest it just like any other crop. You're talking about THC levels. That's correct. Okay. And uh, there would be test plots for this kind of thing? There are. We're in fact uh, today we should be planning the second of our five test plots in the state over uh, on the western slope. Just today? Just today. The first one went in last uh, last Friday, and uh, we've gotten rained out of a couple, and we'll be in uh, hopefully by the end of this week or Monday or Tuesday next week have all five of the test plots in. All right. And so they're around the state, it sounds like. They are. We've taken uh, a look and said, we're going to take advantage of Colorado's uh, unique climates and our u- unique geography. We're going to plant some at higher altitude that gives us uh, higher THC levels out in the eastern plains, along the front range, and on the western slope. And a farmer should be able to uh, see that if a variety produces below 0.3 THC in all those areas, he should be assured that it'll also produce that no matter where he produces it in the state. Where is the plot on the west slope? West slope is over in the Fruta area. Yeah, around Fruta. All right. Where there's a lot of agriculture, of course. And what what do you still have to learn about hemp? I mean, in some ways, hasn't its growth been retarded in this country because it hasn't been grown and you haven't been able to do the kind of R&D that you do with so many other crops? I think it's very true. I, I think if we look at even the Congressional Research Committee has identified 2,500 products that hemp can be used for today. 2,500? 2,500. Okay. I could only name about four, I think. Uh, yeah. And, and I think, you know, even when we look at the medicinal purposes, uh, the, the CBD oils that we, that we hear a lot about on uh, – uh, for t- treatment of epilepsy, that's one of many cannabinoids. And, you know, whether some of the others will have uh, redeeming qualities that we haven't even yet discovered, I think that's the research that we hope the universities are able to start doing now after all this little time. Hmm. Doesn't any hemp grown here have to be processed here before it is shipped out? And so you're talking about changing the crop into an oil or into a fiber. Are there plants around the state that are doing that? Well, I think as, as we look at uh, all the time, uh, you know, as I said, it's an emerging industry. And so seeds seem to be short on the first end, but processing was even shorter. So mm. now processing is starting to come in. We've got investors coming in. We've got a number of processors that are doing extraction that are portable. So I think we're seeing processing now ratchet up as we see production ratchet up. Portable. That is, they're like factories on wheels. That... Factories on wheels moving around. Okay. So how many processors would you say are in the state? You know, state? we don't regulate processors, so mm. I don't have a count. Uh, I do know that we've got some extractors. I know we've got... Uh, some decortifiers, which strips the plant and gives you the fiber to make, you know, start the process of making shirts. And what else? Yeah, what else is on the list? I mean, I know about fiber. I know about hemp oil. Certainly, it's edible. Well, I, again, I think we're, we're two years in. Two years ago, a year, uh, basically the first year into it, we looked at, and I had a lot of people coming to me asking about biofuels. 
Well, that kind of fell off the table because the price of oil dropped from ninety dollars mm. to thirty dollars. So I think you're going to see, you know, market will f- determine which ones of these. And I think for the state or anyone really to know where we're going this early in an industry is pretty difficult. Is hemp very water intensive? Water takes uh, the water use of hemp appears to be about a third to half of what you see in corn. But again, that's why we really hope to get the universities doing some of that agronomic research. Lots of questions still to answer. There are a lot of questions to answer. Dwayne, thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me today. It's Dwayne Sinning, who runs the Industrial Hemp Program for the Colorado Department of Agriculture. When we come back, Western mystery writer Craig Johnson, creator of the Walt Longmire series, takes on the supernatural in a new novella. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Western mystery author Craig Johnson has written a ghost story. Or has he? Maybe there's a logical explanation for all the weird things that happen in this book. His level-headed main character, Sheriff Walt Longmire, certainly isn't jumping to conclusions. Johnson's latest book is called The Highwayman. It's a novella and part of the best-selling series that inspired the Longmire TV show, now on Netflix. And uh, Craig, welcome back to the program. Good to be here, Ryan. You always hit the marrow exactly of my books. I am so proud of you. Oh, that's very kind. (laughs) It it helps to read them. Uh, Your book revolves around a state trooper, Bobby Womack. Mm -hmm. Yes, named for the Mm singer-songwriter. And round about midnight, a fellow trooper named Rosie... Here's his voice on the highway patrol radio. There's just one thing about patrolman Bobby Womack is that he is... He's been dead since 1979. He's been dead for years. <laughs> so why is his voice coming across the highway patrol radio? How, how did he die? Um, he actually died in a, in a crash, like in a very fiery crash um, in the northern tunnel of uh, the Wind River Scenic Byway, which is an interesting little portion of Wyoming there in the center, you know, just above Shoshone to south of Thermopolis. But um, it's an interesting place in the sense that, you know, from the Boyson Reservoir up to the Wedding of Waters uh, near Thermopolis, you've got this Class 5 whitewater. Rapids River that's carved its way through like about 2,500 feet of solid granite walls on either side. And I had this idea from uh, actually from Charles Dickens. Like there's a little short story that he wrote called The Signalman. And it's only about 11 pages long or so, and it's on the internet. Everybody can look it up. Okay. Um, and it's, you know, but it, the problem was it, it really didn't update in the face of modern technology, you know, with GPS positioning, computers, radios, you know, cell phones and all this. I couldn't really do the same story again. But then I was talking to uh, a commandant up there on the Wyoming Highway Patrol, Jim Thomas, who's a great friend of mine. And uh, and I was, I don't know how it, was, it came up, but we were talking about the Wind River Canyon. And he said, well, you know what the old timers call the canyon? And I said, no, what? And he goes, no man's land. He said, because up until until about 10 years ago when they put a tower actually in the canyon, um, radio frequency wouldn't go down in there. And so whenever a highway patrolman went into the canyon, you didn't hear from him again like until 34 you know, minutes later. Fascinating. In other words, that small slice of the world in Wyoming really was stuck in time in terms of communication. It was, and it was the only place that this story could take place, <laughs> to <Yeah>. be honest. <laughs> so your, your main character, or I suppose one of your main characters, in addition, of course, to Sheriff Longmire, 
Bobby Womack. Um, he was a Rapaho. He was. And uh, we should say that American Indians populate all of your books. Mm-hmm. Uh, you write that it's unusual he was both Indian and a highway patrolman. Mm-hmm. This yeah, is it's, it's, a, it's an odd, you know, uh, uh, you know, job for you know, the, the, especially the Arapaho and the Shoshone to kind of take on like that. But it does happen like that. And uh, I don't know. I mean, there were certain aspects of the storyline that needed, you know, uh, the, the the kind of understanding that being that close to the Wind River uh, reservation, the story kind of needed that a little bit. And so I started doing some research, you know, on some of the legends and all these things. And I think there's a actually a portion. You know, of the book, I think, you know, where Kimama, who's this you know, Shoshone Arapaho uh, Shea woman like that, basically looks at Walt and says, you know, you know how he died like that. And Walt says, well, he died in a car rack. And, you know, and she goes, no, he died in fire. And whenever the embers of his life begin to fade away, look at the wind, the high plains wind picks him up, carries him around the world and redeposits him in the canyon again. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a legend that this, this character, you know, has been haunting, um, the canyon, you know, for the last, you know, 40, 50 years, like that. And, um, you know, they try and get, uh, Rosie Wayman, like that, this, this highway patrolman who's getting these radio signals to go in for some psychological evaluation. Right. They think she's crazy. They do. They do. You know, which is, you know, you know, probably a rational response, you know, to someone who's saying they're getting, you know, radio 1078 calls, you know, officer needs assistance calls from a dead highway patrolman. So, uh, it kind of made for an interesting storyline. And I thought, you know, well, okay, this will kind of take Walton and particularly Henry in some places maybe that they haven't been before. And and the reason I said, you know, it's nice because you hit the marrow of each one of the stories is is that, you know, the the real, you know, key element to the storyline is, is that, you know, it's a ghost story, but is it a ghost story? So it's – Or can this this all just be explained? Exactly. I mean there's a portion, you know, where Walt and Henry are standing there in front of the motel where they're staying in Thermopolis. And Walt goes through and just basically gives a rational, you know, reasoning for all of the, the spottings of Bobby Womack over the last last 40 years, you know, there's the family that was, you know, their car went off the road and they've been sitting in the snow and they got the car running. So it's carbon monoxide poisoning. There's the hippie kid that got the ride. Who knows what he was smoking? It goes through all of these rational reasons as to why it is that these things could have been explained. Because it's not just that his voice comes over the radio, but people have uh, accounts of seeing this, oh, yes. this dead trooper. Oh, yes. you, you've mentioned Henry. That's Henry Standing Bear, who's really Sheriff Walt Longmire's sidekick. And until they enter the picture, Rosie, this other patrol uh, member is the only one who hears the haunting radio mm-hmm. traffic. Mm-hmm. She's a highly capable officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this voice makes her wonder if she's going crazy. Um, do you believe in ghosts, Craig Johnson? Oh, I believe that there are things out there that may be a little bit more than, than what we are, you know, uh, fully aware of. I mean, whenever I'm standing around talking with my buddy Marcus Red Thunder, who's, you know, kind of like the model, you know, for Henry in the books. So he's um, a real life person yeah, that you know. Yeah, it is. Like, and, uh, you know, whenever I'm standing around talking with him, one of the things I'm fully aware of is, is that, like, my kind of people have only been in this part of the world for a couple of hundred years. His have been here for a couple of thousand. And so they might be a little more aware, you know, of what's going on around us. And that's it's kind of exemplified, you know, with the Henry character because, you know, as Walt's trying to give all of these rationales for all of these sightings of, you know, of Bobby Womack, you know, he gets to the end and Henry looks at him and says, yes, you found a exam, you know, wonderful reasons for, you know, all of these reasons why it is that, you know, Bobby Womack could have existed. And you've, you've given all of them except for the one that would explain all of them, that he actually does exist. That there is something supernatural. Mm. Have you had supernatural 
Uh, you know, I guess I have, like, to an extent, you know, I mean, you know, things that have happened to me that are just out of the corner of your eye, you know, and that's kind of where I like to write the book is just out of the corner of your eye. I don't want to go all Stephen King. You know, I don't want to do anything <laughs> like that. I, I just kind of like, you know, playing in those margins where you're just not quite sure. And that's, you know, what the, the, the tightrope I think that you have to walk um, in these type of stories like that, where it just you know keeps the reader going all the way through till the very last sentence or maybe the very last word of the book. As you said, this is set in the Wind River Canyon, a series of tunnels there. And this is in central Wyoming along Highway 20, as you said, near Thermopolis. When you write about real places, uh, given your following, which is uh, which is enormous, um, especially because of the TV show adding a whole new audience, do you fear that locations will become spoiled? In other words, now now this canyon is going to become a tourist destination, it right? It is. But, you know, boy, I'll tell you what, the, the, the Wyoming Office of Tourism is really kind of happy with me as a, as a general effect. But, but I don't know. I mean, you know, there are always going to be those 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 mitigating factors, you know, like and it's called distance is what it's called. You know, and Ryan, if you were jumping your car and head for the, you know, the canyon, it, it'll take you about four hours to get up there. Like, and, uh, and some of that's some pretty desolate area to drive through. And so Wyoming always has that, you know, that that America's out back, you know, kind of, you know, buffer um, for places getting overrun. You know, I mean, that's that's one of the aspects that it's, it's you know, that it's going to take a while to get there. The other is just, you know, boy, I mean, come on, let's be serious. We have two seasons in Wyoming. We've got winter and the 4th of July. Like, and it usually flurries <laughs> on the 4th of July. So I, I don't worry about it too You're much. You're not too worried. All right. So will this novella eventually become an episode of the Longmire Netflix series. Difficult to say. Like that, um, you know, they use bits and pieces of the books, um, ideas, you know, from the books and all that. I mean, one of the first conversations that I remember having um, with the producers of Longmire, they said, you know, your books don't break down easily into a 42 minute um, teleplay. And I was like, thank you. Yeah, I that's appreciate a compliment. that. <laughs> I thought so too. <laughs> I thought, you know what, if they did, I don't think anybody should be reading them for God's <laughs> sakes, you know. So, you know, the difficulty is, is they, they kind of have to take the, the bits and pieces. And uh, there was like, I guess it was the, the opening episode sort of the second season, which used, you know, almost completely from one of my books, uh, uh, Hell is Empty. Um, but, you know, they're, they're just an awful lot of sub-story and an awful lot of other you know, effects that they have to you know, kind of leave out. Yeah, this one would require some real effects because it, there are, it seems that there are, this is a fiery series of tunnels, mm-hmm. as, as you have described them. A big theme in this book, I think, is the importance of being understood mm-hmm. because this this uh, dead or, you know, half-dead trooper um, passed away with some confusion about whether he was a good guy or mm-hmm. not. Absolutely. Like, and I think that that's, you know, that's where the fun of, uh, you know, writing contemporary Westerns, you know, maybe with a little bit more of a social meaning uh, kind of comes into play. Like, it isn't all black and white hats. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's gray hats. You know, or as hmm. T.S. Eliot used to say, you know, all cats is gray in the dark, you know. So it's kind of fun to be in those margins, like, and work in those areas where, you know, you're just not quite sure. Like, and, uh, you know, hopefully the story, you know, kind of comes to a conclusion on that. So this is a novella. Your first, your next, rather, full-length book is due out in September. It is. It's called An Obvious Fact. It is. Give us it, it might sound familiar, that particular quote. It's actually from Arthur Conan Doyle, and it's uh, one of the famous quotes from Sherlock Holmes, that there is nothing quite so deceptive as an obvious fact. And uh, the reason it's named that, why I'm using Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes quotes, is because uh, Henry actually picks up a copy of the annotated short stories of Arthur Conan Doyle from Walt's, uh, you know, his bookshelf as they're heading out to go to Hewlett, Wyoming, up in the northeast corner of Wyoming, a little town of 396 brave souls and a police force of 
one, um, which would be probably pretty good. You know, when you look at the crime rates, you know, in the high plains, you know, one cop per 400 people. That's not, not a bad, bad. ratio. Okay. The only problem being it's a little sister city over in South Dakota, right across the border is a little town called Sturgis. And, oh, where um, the motorcycle rally is. Yes. And just last year, they had the largest motorcycle rally in the world with over a million bikers. And uh, about half of them, about 500,000 or the entire population of Wyoming, um, drift over into Wyoming so that they can ride by Devil's Tower, a geographic feature that's right there where Hewlett is. And so all I could think was, you know, half a million bikers, um, you know, one cop. That was probably something Walt and Henry and most certainly Vic need to be involved with. Something is going to happen <laughs> that isn't good, <laughs> given that scenario. That's always what you can count on. I mean, it's interesting that you uh, have written about a state that is so thinly populated and yet has no shortage of stories. Oh, no, none whatsoever. I mean, I kind of had to broaden, you know, Walt's jurisdictional applications a little bit, you know, because after like about the second book, I started thinking, OK, well, now how many people can you kill off in the least populated county, <laughs> in the least populated state in America <laughs> so before it, becomes... it starts getting kind of ridiculous? And so that's when I thought, you know what, why not let, why not, why not let Walt's, you know, uh, his reputation precede him a bit, you know, and allow him to, to go to other parts of this state and uh, maybe investigate, you know, other other jurisdictions. All right. An obvious fact is the next book, uh, as I said, due out in September. Thanks so much for being you with us. You bet, Ryan. My pleasure. Always is. Western mystery writer Craig Johnson. He lives in Cross, Wyoming, population 25, if that. His latest book is called The Highwayman. You can read the first chapter at cprnews.org. Johnson is at the Midtown Arts Center in Fort Collins tonight. And here's a song he mentions in the book. It's all over now by the Rolling Stones. Bobby Womack, for whom the patrolman is named, wrote the song. Still to come, a reward is being offered to history buffs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A reward is being offered for history sleuths. You see, back in the 1880s, Jewish immigrants nearly starved trying to farm in Cotopaxi, Colorado. That's in the mountains west of Pueblo. A wealthy Jewish businessman, Emmanuel Saltiel, is often held responsible. Well, now his cousin Miles Saltiel is offering a $25,000 bounty for documents proving that Emmanuel was a good guy after all. A Judaic studies professor at the University of Denver has been asked to assess any new evidence that comes in. He is Adam Rovner, and welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Happy to be here again. First, uh, set the scene. Tell us about this Jewish colony in Cotopaxi where things went south. Well, you know, right went south literally. Uh, right now, this area is, looks pretty much the same as it probably did back then. You have a uh, windswept mountain town. You've got uh, tar paper shacks back then. Today, you have more noticeable businesses, snow peaked, snow peaks, uh, just a rugged, rugged landscape and quite parched when you get up to that high elevation. Cotopaxi is about 6,000 feet high, and they were looking at farming even higher than that in some places. So we're talking about a difficult place. Okay. And uh, tell us about the immigrants who came there. These were Jewish immigrants who were fleeing 
persecution in Tsarist Russia. We're talking about 1881, which sets off this whole wave of immigration. And a lot of that immigration of Jews came to the United States at that point in time. This was because of pogroms, a series of violent attacks against Jews in Tsarist Russia after the assassination of one of the Tsars. So the colonists that were being brought to or sent to Cotopaxi uh, were part of this large wave of immigration. They were just looking for a better life like most immigrants to the U.S. Okay, but why Cotopaxi? This this not so, as you've described it, um, arable place. Yeah, that's a good question. And that is the question that dogs the history of Cotopaxi. So this man, as you pointed out, Emmanuel Saltiel, he was a well-known or at least somewhat known businessman in the state of Colorado at the time. Hmm. He owned a mining company in Cotopaxi. Also Jewish. Also Jewish. And he had uh, named a whistle stop on the railroad going through the town after himself called Saltiel. Uh, today, this is the, still the town of Cotopaxi. Okay. Saltiel himself had a somewhat checkered career. He was a uh, an officer in the Confederate military, Confederate Army. He had been captured. And while captured, he turned for the Union. And then he was drummed out of the Union Army and kicked out of a frontier fortress because of various indiscretions. And he found his way to Colorado where he set himself up as a miner. This is, of course, after the gold rush years. And uh, he had hit some kind of load out there and, and mined it. And so he sets himself up as a caretaker of some kind for these these immigrants. Precisely. He was sort of a, a I guess we would call him a, a wayward Moses. <laughs> and he had uh, some money at his disposal and he did want to do something for his co-religionists, these Jews who were fleeing Russian persecution. So when he was out in New York City on business, and that's a long way from Cotopaxi back in the 1880s, he met a man who was in charge of a group, a philanthropic group, called the Hebrew Emigrant Aid Society. And he discussed various plans for helping to resettle Jews from Russia who were fleeing. They were arriving in New York and other major eastern ports completely impoverished. And he... Saltiel worked out a plan to bring some of these people yeah, out how, west. Yeah, how many? How many wound We're up? talking about the numbers fluctuate depending on who you read and who you quote, but there's about 50 who arrived in the first batch in around May of 1882. And these were people who were loosely related, uh, family, uh, friends of family who came out here. Some of them had agricultural experience. Some of them did not. They were coming from the Ukraine at the time. And Saltiel helped to get this uh, program off the ground also with the largesse of the Homestead Act. Which would have provided them land if they had farmed exactly. it. If, exactly. If, yeah. To set stake a claim. So uh, his distant cousin, Miles Saltiel, is offering this reward, $25,000, that will, I, I suppose, clear up the, the reputation here. What, well, what, what is the reputation for Emmanuel Saltiel? Yeah, I should explain a little bit how I even stumbled upon this this story, which is sort of known by Jewish historians. My colleague Jeannie Abrams has produced a film about this. So she kind of got me into the story. I was asked to write a piece about Colorado Jewish history for The Forward, which is 
the oldest, probably the most respected Jewish periodical national in, in the United States. So I hit on this idea of Cotopaxi. The editor liked it. I wrote a 2,000-word story where I discussed the history. And ever since then, I guess we could say hell has broken loose. Okay. I have gotten uh, angry emails from different sides of this argument. So on the one side, we have Miles Saltiel, who is a distant descendant of the historical Emmanuel Saltiel, and he would like he believes that his forebear has been unduly wronged and his name has been besmirched. And I think it's true that he is often given all of the blame and he wants to clear up this matter. Saltiel, the contemporary British man Miles, wants to wants to kind of, you know, air out the facts. So he has offered uh, large bounties ranging from $250 for documents up to 2500 for documents that will shed more light on the story. He's not only looking for documents that clear the historical name. He's looking for any document that brings to light this history. Okay. And then you have the other side that sees this gentleman as maybe anything but a gentleman. That's right. Hold, holding him responsible for what exactly? Right. What happened and, uh, to these colonists? And an amateur historian who who lives down in Wet Mountain Valley in Cotopaxi, uh, uh, Jennifer Lowe, she's done quite a lot of research on this story as well. And she believes that the historical Emmanuel Saltiel is a villain straight out of the mustache twirling uh, evil uh, past of frontier stories. How so? That he brought them on false pretenses? That's right. For to, what? To, to use them as essentially low-paid labor in his mines. And Miles, in England, obviously opposes this. So the two of them are often at loggerheads about this issue. I found myself caught in the middle. I have no axe to grind in the story whatsoever. Although as a scholar of, of literature and as someone who's interested in, in history and intellectual history, I do believe that the more documents there are, the more light we can shed. Perhaps they further complicate the history, but that's what I'm interested in. Mm. We are talking about the historic uh, Jewish colony of Cotopaxi, which was begun in the 1880s in the mountains west of Pueblo. And there is essentially a, a looming question mark about how it came to be and what the motivations were of its creator. And so uh, Adam Rovner joins us from the University of Denver. He's the neutral arbiter in this uh, historical <laughs> That's question. Right. Have you heard, seen any documents no, yet? No, we have not Nothing's seen any documents have come in for vetting. So Miles appointed me. He, he believes I am objective in this matter, and I believe I am objective in this matter, to sort of vet any archival documents that do come to life. Now, I don't have some kind of historical laboratory in my basement where we're going to be testing ink or anything. But if these are archival documents that are found, then I can at least explain and, and find the provenance of them, then that person will receive the bounty of up to $2,500. Okay. But with the financial incentive, is there a risk that someone makes up a document? I suppose there is. I mean, I think there's always a risk, and I think there are certain ethical issues related to paying for documents. But we're likely talking about things that are resting in an archive. In other words, we can authenticate them. They exist Archivists can vouch for them having been placed in their records. We're not probably going to find original copies lying in someone's uh, cellar trunk. Okay. We're probably going to get photocopies out of an archive. And that's what we're looking for, someone who is interested in the story to shed more light on it. I am, you know, going to then call up the archive, find the archive, make sure it is, shall we say, Legit. kosher. Kosher. <laughs> and uh, 
and uh, then that those researchers can can get that uh, that money that Miles is, I think, offering. I think it's a good way. It's a it's a good Wild West solution. Bounties for a Wild West problem. Indeed, and it just uh, it smacks of that show History Detectives that was on PBS. I'm not even sure if that's on the air anymore. Anyway, are there parallels in the Cotopaxi story to I don't know modern jewelry? Well, I think that. One thing we can say for certain, and your previous guest Craig alluded to this, that without immigration, there would be no United States because everyone here, unless they are Native American, came here as an immigrant. Um, Certainly, Jewish immigrant story has been uh, remarkably successful. The assimilation, the economic impact, as well as the cultural impact on America has been huge. And I think that one of the things we can learn from the Cotopaxi story of failed agriculture is something we can learn about all immigrant groups, that success often comes out of failure, that refugees, that the impoverished can grow to uh, be important members of a civic community. Because that's what happened with some of these colonists. Exactly, Ryan. You know your history. These Jews who were descended from those who failed at Cotopaxi for a variety of reasons ended up, most of them, staying in the West, many of them in Denver, and some of them becoming very important members of the Denver community, civic, economic, and cultural. Any names you'd draw? Uh, I believe, and you know, I'm not an expert on the local Denver community. I believe okay. that the Quiets are who helped to donate this building were descended from the Cotopaxi community. The Quiet family. I yeah, see. yeah. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. It was a pleasure. Adam Rovner, professor at DU's Center for Judaic Studies, and he talked about the bounties being offered for digging up documents about the 1880s Cotopaxi Jewish colony. We've posted links to a conversation with Miles Saltiel and some photos at cprnews.org. After a break, how the West inspired Russian-American novelist Vladimir Nabokov. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Russian-American author Vladimir Nabokov once wrote, Some part of me must have been born in Colorado. Nabokov visited the Rockies annually in the 1950s, and according to writer Landon Jones, those excursions helped shape his novel Lolita, which remains controversial some 60 years later. Jones wrote a piece about Nabokov's travels for The New York Times and joins us. Welcome to the program. Thanks for being with us, Landon. Thank you very much, Ryan. What was it about Colorado that seemed to resonate so much with Nabokov? Well, it certainly did, and it reminded him of his of his childhood in in, in Russia. Uh, he lived in an estate that was in the mountains or on the slopes of the mountains, and he he it was a terrain, a landscape very similar to Colorado's, and and also he would travel in the Crimean uh, Peninsula, I guess, and likewise, Colorado reminded him of that too. So. He was very sentimental about it, and, and he would come back. He started off visiting Colorado as he traveled around the West, going to places like Telluride and, and uh, Estes Park. And he incorporated Colorado into the ending, in particular, of Lolita. This is the novel about the illicit relationship between an older man and a much younger girl. Um, here's a reading uh, from the final pages from actor Jeremy Irons. I grew aware of a melodious unity of sounds rising like vapor from a small mining town that lay at my feet in a fold of the valley. One could make out the geometry of the streets between blocks of red and grey roofs, and green puffs of trees, and a serpentine stream, 
and the rich ore-like glitter of the city dump, and beyond the town, roads crisscrossing the crazy quilt of dark and pale fields, and behind it all, great timbered mountains. Were there other connections between Nabokov and Colorado that uh, you could tell us about? Well, that, the one you just, where that was to me, Irons Weeding, um, it's really a beautiful connection. Uh, that was in Telluride, and Nabokov had the exact experience that he just put word for word into, um, into Lolita. And he had walked up, he, he, he went to Colorado to look for butterflies. Huh. I mean, it, it, it wasn't, he wasn't, it wasn't your typical tourist. Uh, and they, you could find great numbers of different species of butterflies along the continental divide in, in a relatively compressed area. So, so uh, he would go up to 12,000 feet and tell you why and chase butterflies. <laughs> um, in 1951, he, he caught the, the most prized butterfly. He, he identified a brand-new butterfly species, a female of a species, and no one had ever done that before. He's very proud of that. He said he wrote to his friends that, that he completely bungled the vacation for, as far as his family was concerned, <laughs> um, but that he did get what he wanted, which was the butterfly. And he described uh, Telluride as being an old-fashioned, absolutely touristless, believe it or not, mining town full of the most helpful, charming people. Hmm. So Nabokov and his wife Vera drove more than 150,000 miles on their excursions through the West. And it's important to say that Vera did all the driving. <laughs> Vera did the driving, all right. And I suppose yeah, she, he, he did not even have a driver's license. She did the driving, and she carried a pistol with her in case they were encountered rattlesnakes. Okay. And they did. And I suppose it was Vladimir's job to look for butterflies. Um, yeah, so he could focus. His wife, Vera, really lies behind Nabokov's success, because she, she was his enabler. She, she was his driver. She did everything. She organized his lectures. I think she typed Lolita. Uh, and Lolita was quite, as you say, quite scandalous at the time. And he considered, oh, considered publishing under a, a pseudonym, which he did not do in the end. Mm. But he tried to burn the manuscript of Lolita a couple of times, and it was, it was Vera who, uh, who went and rescued it from the flames. Vera, who knew that it was an important piece of literature, and uh, it certainly became to be. You say in some ways that these excursions make him more American than writers like Jack Kerouac, um, who wrote, of course, On the Road. Gosh, that's a bold statement to make, isn't it? it? I think it's defensible that no American writer saw more of the landscape in America than did this Russian, uh, Vladimir Nabokov, because he just covered so many miles. And he, he was not an elitist about it. I mean, he went, he went to the ticky-tack motels. He, he went to the, to the diners with, you know, as he described them, sugar drunk flies wobbling around in the diner. Uh, he, he knew the American landscape and the, and the kind of, uh, you know, brass, confident, you know, sometimes vulgar um, American roadside, the blue highways, the blue highway land before the interstate. He was none of this was on interstates before that in, in the uh, in the late forties and early fifties. I, I wonder if you've traced any of his footsteps or automobile treads, I suppose, and and seen the West in in Nabokov's eyes. I have done uh, a good bit of it, and I did it. 
a lot of it last summer, and I did a lot of it uh, a little north of Colorado in, in Wyoming. He went to Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, and once at least to Oregon, uh, all along the Continental Divide. And, um, and I went to and stayed in some of the same motels that he had, he had stayed in, uh, particularly one in a town called Afton, Colorado, and in, and in also a town which I now know is pronounced Dubois. Dubois. Uh, I'm sorry, Wyoming. Dubois, Wyoming. All right. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with writer Landon Jones. In the New York Times, he wrote a piece called On the Trail of Nabokov in the American West, and it's about the surprising connections between the West and the author of Lolita. Did he know that Lolita would be the third rail that it turned out to be in so many ways? Uh, the third rail meaning deadly, or uh, well, or yeah, just uh, you know, I suppose electrifying and yeah. and controversial. Yeah, I, I think he anticipated that, and it started off. It, it was uh, it was published originally in, in France and then in England, and, uh, and in England it was denounced as pornography. And uh, but then the writer Graham Greene kind of came to the rescue of uh, Lolita and saved it. It's a beautifully, beautifully written, very complex book with multiple layers. I mean, it's about this this fellow Humbert Humbert who has kidnapped a little girl, and so. But he, but the writing is is uh, sort of breathtakingly elegant, and, and and the descriptions are amazing. And so it just it just puts you in in a car with this 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 crazy guy, uh, and and you 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 start to buy it. Uh, I did the I did the article because I I've, I've driven out from my home in New Jersey to the Rocky Mountains every single year and back for 15 years uh because we have a dog and we don't want a, the dog to fly on an airplane <laughs> and so we drive the dog and I used to always joke that I felt like Humbert Humbert with Rolita but instead of having a uh, a nymphette as he called them I had a wife and a dog uh but then I found out that I more or less had done what not only what Humbert Humbert had done in Lolita, but I also, the Nabokov had done the same exact thing. So it's really about three journeys, uh, Humbert and Lolita, Nabokov and Vera, and, and me and my wife Sarah, and my dog, Mac. Well, you say that you've been surprised by the reception the articles received. It's been one of the top emailed articles on the Times website. Um, uh, why do you think that is? Yeah, um, they well, for one thing, they have beautiful photographs, and, and I give give the photographer Jenny Osborne a lot of credit for that. Um, but there's a hunger for information about him. There's a new book published about Nabokov every single year, at least one, and so there, there just remains a lot of fascination, and it's, it's almost as if he's coming back into into vogue again. I mean, that Lolita sales are way up now, and the, the novel itself. Uh, and then, of course, he wrote many other great books and a great memoir called Speak Memory. Fascinating. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, I must enjoy it. Landon Jones, author of On the Trail of Nabokov in the American West. There is a link to that at our website, cprnews.org. A program note now, our regular interview with the governor is coming up next week. What would you like to ask him? Email your questions to news at cpr.org, news at cpr.org. Please include your first and last name and where you live. And just in case you were madly searching for a pen, the email address one more time for your questions for the governor, news at cpr.org. 
Finally today, the Denver trio I and the Arrow travels into psychedelic and surf rock territory. They recently released a new cassette, yes, cassette, titled Ghost Tapes. Drummer Mark Anderson explains the name for the EP was inspired by real-life ghost tapes. I, like, heard this radio show that was talking about the Vietnam War, and there was, like, a form of warfare that the United States was using that was projecting these, like, really wild psychedelic recordings of what they, they were intended to sound like ghosts. The recordings are insane. Like, they're such scary, trippy, wild recordings. Recorded in the CPR Performance Studio, this is the song Tiger by I and the Arrow. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. And we wish to extend a warm welcome to Anthony Cotton, a new producer on Colorado Matters. This is CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.